0: So is that how you got started was with commercials or
1: uh, no I got started with uh, TV news documentaries well, I, have,
0: I have to infer something well commercials
1: yeah I did I, I have a very weird path but right. you for
0: sure operated yeah the yeah. only reason I knew that is because yeah. we were back in the other room and you were talking just now about right you know why that camera was tough to. and it's funny because I mean for example our company was making we made our first documentary this year and which led to this whole fiasco Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, and so we bought a scarlet Mm -hmm. and i learned the hard way that a camera isn't just the image that it makes you have to use it yeah and uh you know if the support system isn't right if the way it's built isn't right it it can be it can now be pointless how good the image Mm -hmm. is if you can't actually get it just go and shoot with it the way you want to shoot with it so yeah. what did you? So when did you start operating? I mean, was it was it was it um, through the new stuff that you
1: talked about? No, I mean the typical classic thing that everybody says, but it's probably true for everybody. I had my dad's eight millimeter camera, and I started shooting movies when I was in junior high school. So you know you, you're operating. About? Oh, I don't know. There were surrealist dramas. Uh-huh. Uh There uh-huh. one was a comedy magic show. One was a uh, one was just a, images and sort of trippy kind of thing. It was basically it was early music videos. I would hear a song that I liked, and I would just shoot images to fit to the song, whatever I felt went with it. That's pretty ahead of its time. So yeah, it was it was pretty good. It was uh, like, or, it was a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> in super in eight millimeter and then super eight. Ah, so um, did a Jefferson Airplane song, did a Pink Floyd song, did a Richie Haven song. What did you do for the like Pink that. Floyd song? Pink Floyd was actually, it was, an, it, was a, it was a total accident. It was something it was was fabulous. It was one of those wonderful things. Yeah. where And I haven't transferred it to, to digital yet. I'm going to do it one of these well, days. Well, you're going to have to do it for this but now, you realize. I that. did, sure. Yeah.
0: This will be the, the impetus you have. So to... the
1: thing that I was doing was I got, I was shooting 8mm. Yeah. I was in I was in art school. Yeah. And so by this time I was already in college. And somebody gave me some old Kodachrome film. Uh-huh. Like, like slide film, you mean? No, no, Kodachrome, 8mm Kodachrome.
0: Okay. I... Like
1: probably 10 years old. Okay. Outdated. Outdated, okay. Outdated. And had not been stored. Oh, so you're saying it was expired stock? Expired stock. It had been stored probably in a closet somewhere, so oh, it was no. not refrigerated or anything like that. And I decided to shoot something with it, and I saw this, um, I saw some, I was shooting images off a of television, because I was doing art. Installations and like I was I was studying what was called multimedia, but it was really conceptual art and installation art and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that's what I studied in school. So I was shooting this thing off off the uh, off a, a regular television, and it was something from I don't know what movie it was, but it was Judy Garland doing some sort of dance. Uh huh. Okay. And I shot it at 24 frames with this film. Sent it to Kodak. On X? No, on, on a, it was a a Woolen sack eight
0: millimeter. So it had a crystal quartz. No, 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 no. It's a wind-up camera. Wind-up it goes camera. for
1: thirty seconds and, and then, then you wind it up again. Got so it. I was just shooting these images to use for I didn't know what. So I, I sent it away to Kodak, got the film back, and the emulsion had semi-stripped, and it was all patchy because it like it stuck together and it came apart. And when it came back, it was the most incredible color images, like this sort of pale turquoise and golden Ambers and and little spots of red and little spots of green and that was just dancing around with this image. And I shot it at uh, eighteen frames a second. But then I had a variable speed projector and I was trying to figure out what to do with I projected the film and it was great, but then I started I stuck it up at four frames a second playback or six frames. So projection, I was going it, So right. I, was going, uh, I was going a third of the speed that I shot it at. Yep. So the one, the 30 seconds, I guess I got 90. I don't know how it, I've got to remember how it worked. I guess I guess I stopped and I did it again. I must have spliced it together. But um, Anyhow, by ch- projecting it, at, it's either four frames or six frames. I got this beautiful slow motion, but step motion, which I don't usually like for slow motion. Yep. But for this, it worked because of the thing. And I started listening to music, and I had just gotten Pink Floyd's Umaguma. And um, I think I chose Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun. Right, yeah. But I did a mix between Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun and Saucer Full of Secrets. Put the two together. Yeah. And I started playing around with this music, and I found a section of it starting at one point where it just synchronized perfectly for this one piece. So it's not the full song. You're saying,
0: what you're saying is... It was. It was. You invented. It was <laughs> you actually, it, Roberto Schaefer. No, I think there was some invented music video before the then. concept of lining up the Wizard of Oz with Dark Side of the Moon.
1: Oh no, actually, that came that came slightly after that. Judy but, Garland.
0: Yeah. Pink Floyd. Yeah. There's there's some, so everyone out there smoking yeah, a joint yeah, today, yeah, watching Dark Side with Wizard of Oz yeah, actually yeah. has it wrong. It should be it should be. Judy Garland dancing, whatever movie it with, was, Sasso's no, secrets. secrets. Yeah, but they can yeah. only see your <laughs> my version.
1: version. Of it. Right, that's the catch. We got to sell this now, and we, now we have to get my version out there. Yeah, now we got to <laughs> license this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was an amazing synchronicity. It just worked so perfectly, and so from there, I, then I did one to uh, uh, Jefferson Airplane song. Um, two songs I put together because they had from two continuous two albums that came out after each other. One song that was a continuous song that spanned two albums uh, was uh, the house at Yumi and Poonil and the house at Puneil Corner. And they actually went into each other. One became, you know, it was a segue. They cut it up into two pieces over two albums. So I did that and that was like a nine minute long song and I, I cut together. That one I frame cut eight millimeter super eight film. Also images all taken from the television. Shots of John Wayne and all sorts of different things. Mostly cowboys. Yep. And I was cutting every two frames and four frames on, on you know on drum Splicing beats. Placing it and on, yourself. Yeah. On, with tape. With tape. On on guitar beats and drum beats and guitar chords and all that
0: to sync it. And it was not an easy chore. <laughs> no. Not an easy chore. But you were committed to it. Yeah. yeah. But if you're talking about this now, some yeah. twenty, however many years later, it obviously this the effect that you achieved off of doing these things were made an impression on you. Oh yeah. I still love doing that kind of thing.
1: I mean, I still love art film over
0: commercial film. Which is That's probably why I don't work that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, I, you know, the thing is, I can never tell from somebody's resume if they're working a lot or not working. All I know is that you've lent some really, really great pictures. Thank you. Yes, you've done some beautiful, beautiful work. Um, you know, I, I, I've learned not to compare people to other people because sometimes I go, oh, thank you, that's so nice. Mm-hmm. And then, since it's like, I right. Know, my shit doesn't look yeah. good. I, you know, for what it's worth, I, I, I sort of see a, 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 a similarity between yourself and, and Robert Ellsworth's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of my fans and friends. and Well, we're, we're In huge. fact, I was supposed to
1: direct a film about five years ago, and Bob said he would shoot it for me, which would have been a dream. But hey. The money hey. never came through. So, Just out of curiosity,
0: have you ever been on set? Where, have you ever sh- shot for a DP turned director?
1: Uh, good question. No, but I've shot for a lot of directors who say they were DPs. <laughs> Mostly commercial guys. That's yeah. Hilarious. Yeah.
0: I've shot for Yeah and and, and 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 why why would they why would they lie about it? It's just they they believe they were Because they're
1: directors. Right. And they believe they can do everything. Right. You know, there's a lot of these guys who just, you know they're just full of themselves too much and believe that they can do everything and do it better, and you're there because, you know, well, the client really wanted a name. Something like that. Right. They so, wanted to meet the guy who shot Halle Berry naked, and, you know, that kind of stuff.
0: And, and, but that's as far as your actual frame of knowledge goes is that you happen to shoot Halle Berry naked. So right. That's it. Right. Yeah. Right, of course. Yeah. Great scene, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> happens to be. Um, so. Tough one to operate. Oh, I can my, only imagine that's a My eyepiece problem. just kept fogging up. Yeah. There was no eyepiece yeah. heater that would work yeah. on that.
0: Oh, I thought you meant it was fogging up because you were getting a little. Well, that yeah, too. But
1: the heater didn't work to counteract it. So, oh, really? So yeah. So it just kept fogging up. Oh, that's annoying. Yeah.
0: So that's why. So, oh, so so that's all that artistic framing yeah, was because yeah. you didn't. Yeah, because I couldn't see. <laughs> actually, I think there's there's a uh, there's a uh, um, a Matty Libatique story about. It, it's in the movie. Yeah. It's in uh, Requiem for a Dream. it close-up on Ellen Burson's face, and it's like here. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, it's like a screamer, but instead of being yeah. whatever the framing should be, I, right? I, I don't know. I just thought it's, it's, it's because, it. because he, he yeah, 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 he was he was crying, you know, there's like Aronofsky runs over and says, man what's going on?" You know, <laughs> I can't see. <laughs> anyway, but, yeah. um, so let's go back and get and tell so, so, so you you obviously make art films. You have a passion for art films. You got into doing news. Footage?
1: Yeah, I was well. I I started professionally. I started working in a house that did TV commercials, non-union toy commercials, yeah. in New York. Yeah, and I got hired just to be a general crew. So I did a year of everything, every department. So you this know, is working. for cable, like- no, no. This was this was in the seventies.
0: Okay, so, so where where these commercials going? TV. Yeah, you know, no, regular, so like, regular like local toy broadcast. commercials. Oh, regular? they were
1: national. They were all different toy commercials, but they were, it was a non union house. Got it was it. a fully, they had their own studios. It was the old Terry Toons building in New Rochelle, New York. They had two sound studios, sound stages. They were shooting commercials, shooting in commercials in New Rochelle, New York. and editing them and doing everything in-house. in house. A full time crew. So when there was no commercials, we were painting the boss's dining room or driving his girlfriend around in Florida or doing, you know, whatever.
0: So it was the same thing as L.A.? Basically. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Except that I was deal. getting
1: a small paycheck every week whether I did anything or not. That's right. right. Um, so I did that for a year. Then I went away and got out of the business for four years. And What did you do then? I lived on the beach and had fun. Got it. In Cape Cod.
0: Bit of a vagabond, really.
1: Yeah, and traveled, did some hitchhiking around the world. Basically. Went to the Paris cafes and... Uh, kind of, yeah. Did a lot of traveling in South America. And, and I actually moved to Buffalo for two months, three months during the winter of the biggest storm ever. And Why would you do that? A friend of mine was starting a advertising agency there, and he said I could run it as the, I could be the visual guy there and shoot all the commercials. he never got one job, though? No. No. It turned out his boss, his partner was a con man, and there was nothing really happening, so right. it, was, it was fun. Got it. 14 feet of snow in one weekend. Oh. Literally? Yeah. 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 We, we were stuck. We were, he had rented the second floor of a psychiatrist's house, him and his girlfriend, and his girlfriend's mother. And, and, and I moved up. in with them, and the snow got up so high, we couldn't get out of the house for three days. And finally, we had to ski out of the second floor down to get out. And it was fun. But that—so I, I went back to Cape Cod, and while I was in Cape Cod, I worked, and I made jewelry and took photographs for advertising for jewelry stores and uh, leather stores where I worked also— and met some people and worked in the movie theater. And the movie theater people knew that I had once done something with cameras right. or something somewhere in New York. And one day they called me and they said, we have friends who are coming up here and shooting a, a low-budget feature. And they brought the DP, but they didn't, for the cameraman they called him. But they, they promised him an assistant and they didn't, there is nobody and do, do you want to do it? And so I said, well, I have never really done it before, but
0: I'll sure. meet him.
1: Right. So I went and met this guy and we hit it off and so he hired me to First for him. He had a, a, an Eclair ACL. Mm-hmm. Shot the whole movie on that. So it was a whole feature? It was a feature. feature. What was it called? Yeah, It was called Alexis. Um, now we know that Roberto yeah. has a good memory. Yeah. And it was, but with a Y. Alexis, Y-S. Oh, okay. And, um, good picture? No, no, no. It was uh, the, the guy who wrote it. Uh, the funny thing is the director, the girl, guy, boyfriend, girlfriend, Wrote it together, yeah. and he directed. She started, and it was a vehicle for her. Yeah. He, his claim to fame was that he was the, and he was actually pretty good at this. He was the lead ape in 2001. Oh, really? The guy he was in the who <coughs> did the yeah who did the thing yeah he was that yeah a, he was he was a, he was a mime, and mm-hmm. he was the lead ape and taught the others to do that. And, and he now was, he's directing. And well, then he was, and yeah. he was trying to do something. Actually, I
0: found out something else a few weeks ago about 2001 that like blew my mind which was that the voiceover of Hal is a yeah. Canadian actor who's at Stratford married to Martha Henry <gasps> and it was like and I, when I thought it was like him? oh yeah I guess that is him that they just
1: is, used his voice today I heard on the radio they were talking about uh, something
0: they heard I think it's Hal I think his name is Ned N- Beatty something Beatty huh. not Ned Beatty but, but, but yeah not Warren Beatty no it's <laughs> not really not Warren Beatty yeah <laughs> no although he would be a good it's Hal it's Jim Beatty is it James I don't know. Okay. But he, uh, yeah, no, it's yeah. I, and apparently, he did the entire voiceover for Hal in like two and a half hours.
1: Hmm. Well, it was pretty monotone, so you know there was not a lot of, lot of emoting to do. So why not? Surprise <laughs> yeah, Surprised why? it took him that long. Yeah. The movie, <laughs> was only, problem, the movie was only man? two hours long. All you have to say is "Daisy, Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe it took him a while to learn how to sing "Daisy, Daisy."
0: Oh yeah, that was yeah. great. Yeah. That's where it went, when yeah. things are, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: and that was a, an important film for me growing up. I saw it in Cinerama. My father took me for my, for a birthday party, to the Warner Brothers Cinerama Theater in downtown. And so it, three, you know, three projectors, the whole thing. Oh, the you original, said- the original Cinerama projection of it. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty outstanding. What
0: was the format of the original Cinerama? They would, they would three projectors, it, three projectors
1: lined up, lined three, one, two, three, crossing, and so you got a super wide screen. And where they would and the And the, it, was, it was seamless. You couldn't see. And it was a curved, perfectly curved screen, so it was flat projection right. all the way around. Still, they have the Cinerama Dome you know, in here. What and about, they show movies on it, but it doesn't really fit because they don't show Cinerama. They show a regular okay. movie. And they, I went to see Apocalypse Now there a few years ago. And it looked horrible because the sides all stretched. and It was just way too... Right. And unfortunately, the last movie I shot is premiering there next week or in two weeks, and I'm wondering what it's going to look like on the
0: Dome. Which, uh, which film was The this? Host. Oh, right. Which looks yeah. good. It's a good film. Yeah? Yeah. It's fun.
1: It's a fun film to shoot. Great director. Wonderful guy. But I'm digressing. No, no. Or we, I'm, I'm, we are I'm progressing. Good. We are digressing. I should digress
0: back <laughs> No, to... no, no. It's okay. Let's digress. So, so, you, so you, you, you get this job as a first, and then you go back to New York? Uh, well, I was living in Provincetown. You were living in Provincetown. Yeah. Okay, so, so
1: at the end of the film, and he had, he had done another film that he actually spent the winter cutting in Truro up there and uh, he said do you like do you like doing this he said I said yeah it'd be fun to, to do some more.'" he says well look you're really good whatever uh, if you want to get into the business don't stay up here there's nothing up here it'll never happen here because I really had a great time in Provincetown it was a wonderful place to live year-round um, but he said come to New York and I'll, I'll help you out I'll get you work you know you can work with me and all that so uh, two months later I moved to New York and moved into his loft for like three months until I could find another place my roommate had just moved to New York from there, also, and so I moved. Then I moved into his loft, and then found my own loft, and we got one together. Push came to shove. I, I needed work, and um, so I called up those people that I'd worked for before at that studio in New Rochelle. And I said, "You know, do you?" It was, I guess, it was the fall, and their big business season is from November to January, just before Toy Fair. And they said, "Sure, come on in. We could use a, an assistant to the um, production manager."
0: In New York or in New Rochelle?
1: In New Rochelle. So I said, okay, I've never done it before, but I guess I could learn, whatever. So I went and started taking the train, reverse commuting out to New Rochelle, and was the assistant production manager for six weeks of their heavy season. And then uh, they say, okay, you know, we're done. We don't need you anymore in January. And I said, okay, fine. I went back to New York and I was partying and having fun. You know, I just got into New York City and I grew up in the suburbs, but I'd never lived in the city before. Right. You know, it was. Great fun. I was in Tribeca. It was all happening. It was, I lived around the street, around the corner from the Mud Club. You know, it was, yeah. it was a good time. It was a good time. Yeah. And New yeah. York in the, uh, in the uh, 70s, 70s was, it was pretty great.
0: Fantastic.
1: So, uh, and then six weeks later, they called me and said, hey, do you want to come back and work for us again? And I go, well, what? They said, well we fired the production manager. How would you like to be the production manager? So I said, sure. sure. So I went back, and I was a production manager, and then I became a producer for five years doing toy commercials. But I wanted to shoot. I was getting bored with producing. I didn't, didn't, they didn't enjoy it. I didn't get any pleasure out of it. So, um, but they didn't want to put me in the camera department. And people tried to sabotage me and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So I went freelance. And I worked for another guy in New York who was putting together a shooting miniatures kind of studio. And spent a year or more working for him for nothing to build the studio up and got ripped off when he decided not to pay us. Was being another friend. And so then I... But in the meantime to go back a little bit, I started shooting feature news with the friend who got me into New York. He, who got me there, got, was getting me jobs. He was shooting a lot of news stuff for European television. Mm-hmm. Basically documentaries for European television. Right. So I would go around with him, assisting him all over the country. Mil? 16 mil with his ACL, shooting stuff all over the country. And um, finally he just said, you know, he didn't want to shoot anymore. He wants to concentrate on writing and directing. So he gave me all his accounts. So all these... Because these people all knew me, so they started hiring me. I was working for the Dutch, German, French, Italian. Um, You speak any of those languages? I spoke French and French at that time because I had studied in college. But you didn't really need to, because their journalists all spoke English, right? And then I hooked up with with friends of mine, an Italian friend of mine. We hooked up with a Swiss journalist, and we started doing all their stuff. And we started we put together a company. So I was doing all this foreign news. Stuff mostly on sixteen and then with the Swiss we started shooting on Umatic with Ikigami HL seventy nine A's, which were a pain in the ass, but
0: Okay. Uh, so this is, what format is this now? Three quarter inch umatic. Quater, all right. Now just take care of those three quarter inch video I still have some tapes if you want to Oh I'd love if you wanna you build should a, actually if you wanna build a wall edit, or something. In the, well in in the editing. Oh seat. next to those cams. Yeah. Sure. I'm not getting sure. We'll take you up on yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll 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 get the courier to sure. pick it up. Yeah. So, when you're shooting, You can be
1: the courier since you're in Manhattan Beach. swing by Venice. And,
0: or you're a playa. Swing by... Closer. Yeah, <laughs> closer. So what size chip is in those cameras? Good question.
1: No idea. I don't really know. Right. I'm going to guess two-thirds. Right. Or so one they, inch. Like one inch. Could be a one inch.
0: Like Maybe one inch. And then what sort of lens... One inch, you know, diagonal. Yeah. Yeah. And then you'd have a video lens on They are all,
1: yeah, the ENG video lenses, all those ones that always use the weirdest... Ways of telling you what they are. It's not like a ten to one or a twenty-five. It's a three point four times
0: eleven. Right. So, so. Outside of the interesting artifacting, uh, noisy tape look that three quarter inch yeah. can give. <laughs> yeah. You were shooting sixteen millimeter. Yeah. You were processing your film. You were getting video transfers of it back. I'm assuming, or some version, or, or no, just, the
1: sixteen millimeter would go. We'd shoot it and it would go straight to the to the um, whatever country. But did News, you
0: see what you shot?
1: Occasionally. Okay, but you'd see it. Yeah, so, yeah. so you're,
0: you, 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 the point is, as a photographer, yeah. you go in, you light, you shoot, yeah. and you have some concept of what that looks like, and then you're, 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 it's met that concept is met, that existential right. that now you have video. Mm-hmm. And you go and you shoot the first thing with it, and you go back to look at it later on a monitor. What's the first thing that goes through your mind? It looks like video? It looks like
1: video It looks real It looks like But it's supposed to be news And it was okay For that stuff We were shooting Trying to make it look As you know Compositionally as nice As we can And we didn't do A lot of lighting Because it wasn't A lot of interviews And stuff It was more Daylight exterior stuff Right like Down the street Down the street On the beach uh, Going to different cities Interviewing people On the street In front of schools And things like that Bounce cards And you know Right It wasn't high art Yeah but it was, it was a good experience for traveling and you know learning to work with video cameras. So cut to I'll just say because there is a direct correlation. I moved to Italy in 1982, mm-hmm. and when I got there, and I had met some Italian was Italian that when you commercial to Roberto? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had met some Italian commercial people in LA, in, in New York yeah. that would come over and shoot commercial, and I got turned on to them through some Italians I knew in New York that, and an old girlfriend or two. Uh, so when I went to Italy. I would I called them up and said, you know, I'm I moved here now, you know, if you have any work if I can do and they all would look at me and they go, Oh, hey, you know video, right? And I go, Sort of. He goes, Well you're American, you must know video. Okay, so you're gonna shoot this commercial for us. We're shooting video. Nobody here knows how to do a video, so you can shoot it. I was American, so they figured I knew video. It was kind of bizarre because the video systems were still better in, in Europe than they were. Right, because in America, America. they had PAL. They had, they had also high-band UMATIC, which we didn't even have, which was more like um, the high-def version of UMATIC. Right. It was higher more, resolution, high resolution, more, more lines, yeah. better color
0: Better system. everything, yeah. yeah. Probably deeper blacks, too, yeah. you know, like at a lower IRE yeah. or whatever. That... Yeah. So uh, that's uh, completely... So, so, so they, they go, but you're American, so you know this. So, yeah. so now you're shooting, but now you have to light things in right. a, whatever beautiful way you can and you're being and you're stuck with this with this kind of frustrating medium. Yeah. So what what do you do? You just make the best of it? Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean just, they're
1: seeing it on a monitor there. Yeah. You know, it's standard standard def and everything and it's going it is what it is and that's probably the best it's ever going to look. And you do the best you can and you make it as pleasing or as unpleasing depends on what the director's looking for, the client's looking for cuz those were commercial stuff. Um you just try. It. You try to make it look good. And then you try to experiment with it when you can. Right. Or, you know, play with it. And that's when Italy was really big into the squeeze zoom and the quantel, you know, all those flipping graphics and all that. And they started to throw all the and cheap, you know, um, um, switchers with uh, ult- ultimates or just chroma
0: keys. Right. Really, oh okay. Brilliant. So anything you can Anything look. you could to, to, to make a video to screw effect. with the image and make it look looks like know, half the look, half, look new. Right, half the yeah. straight to video logos from the mid eighties yeah. and
1: stuff yeah. like that. Things like, flipping around on the, the screen. Stars. <laughs> spinning and and then right. rippling and yeah, they love that. So. They love that. Oh. Yeah. Oh, oh oh like, 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 like something yeah. flying yeah. into frame and spinning yeah. oh I get it. Right. Yeah, so there was that. I mean most of the stuff I was doing in Italy was film. I was assisting, I was also operating.
0: Did you work under any in, under any great DPs over there?
1: Um, I did. I worked under, as, as the years went on, I bought a Steadicam and became a Steadicam operator. You were a Steadicam operator. Yeah. You really have done the yeah. gamut. I did that for seven years. And I worked, uh, Which? yeah, I worked with, with Tony Immy. I worked with Nestor Almendros. Wow. I worked with, uh, Oliver Woods. I worked with, he's uh, great or Wood. Yeah, Oliver Wood. Yeah. Oliver Wood.
0: Yeah. Shot, um, uh, I think the Bourne?
1: Yeah. The first Bourne. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he's just shot, uh... Something that friends of mine just worked on, or are working on now. Um, yeah, I, I worked with him. I worked with a ton of different people.
0: Pulling focus operating. Steadicam operating. Steady-chem and operating. And regular
1: operating. And uh, I also, when I first got there, I was in, worked as an extra. I was in Rome, so I worked as an extra. And I got to watch Tonino Delacoli for about three weeks in the room with him as he was doing Once Upon a Time in America. No um, kidding. So it was pretty, you know. Renato Tafuri, I worked under him. Um,
0: it was, you know, some good. What did you pick up people. from a, you know, a Nestor Almendros, or from a, you know? I can't quantify it really. It's just, yeah. just seeing, yeah, just seeing and experiencing and and learning. Tell us about steadicamming. I mean, this is, I mean, obviously this is a system that's been refined. You know, we met one of the people we interviewed was Dean Gundy, mm-hmm. and he, you know, said that they first did. The panic Lied was the right. new, was the first version of some. Kind right, of it was studio.
1: the Panavision's version of the Steadicam. Right, yeah, which basically was the same box that Garrett had originally designed the shape of, and Panavision
0: kind of took it and made their own. Made their own. Right. Yeah. So you so you come into it. It sounds like in the mid '80s. Yeah, I think I bought mine
1: a version one, a model one. I think I bought it in '84. Did this ruin your back, your hips, your knees? It strengthened everything for a while, and then it eventually ruined my, my back and my knees.
0: Yeah. How much was the system
1: to buy back then? Well, I, <laughs> I bought a used Model 1 when, when Model 2 was already out, and it turned out that it was the Model 1, the actual camera that had been stolen from Cinema Products, Steadicam, in 1976 at the Photokina. It, awesome. dis, it disappeared from their stand. Yeah. And you it, bought that. I ended up buying that one, not knowing it was that one, of course. So of I, course. I bought it from a friend, you know, a friend of a friend, from a guy who, somebody in New York who had a drug debt and couldn't pay it off. So he offered to give him the Steadicam as payment. Right. and then he sold a lot of drug dealers be, want. Yeah. Well, he figured that he could sell it and get something for it. So yeah. I think I bought it for, I think I bought it for $10,000. No no remote focus or anything like that with just the, just the, the basic
0: Steadicam. So you Steadicam for seven years. You do some, sounds like some very interesting pictures. All, yeah. in, all in Italy or did you come back to? Um,
1: most in Italy I did, uh, and, and all over Europe. I did a lot of music videos. I was DPing a lot of music videos, so I would also Steadicam while I was doing the DP D-cam. job. Yeah, yeah. So all over Europe. Um, I think mostly, yeah. Europe, Scandinavia... I did a few jobs in New York for Italian television Steadicam on some documentary stuff.
0: Are you are you pretty picky with with the Steadicam operators you hire now? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I have a couple of choice guys that I use most of the time. But, right. I mean, there's a lot of there's so many out there that I don't even know that are supposed to be great that I've never worked with. But
0: right. Yeah. But it's. I mean, how long did it take you to figure out like like the horizoning or you know like all these things that. Um, uh, I don't know, you kind of get slapped around
1: enough to, to okay. realize that if you don't figure it out pretty soon, you're not going to work. Right.
0: So at this point, you're, you're getting. And what, 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 what are you picking up about the idea of composition? I mean, I, I always find. Com- that, for me, man. composition
1: comes back to art school and, you know, looking at paintings and photographs and, you know, just looking at the masters and, and those that, that contradict them and just, you know, for whatever emotional impact you want to get off and and just something in an innate sense of design you know either i think you can learn it but there's you sort of have to have it built in because i've also had i've worked with operators yeah who you know do that right and i go no 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 it's the framing you know i want you to give that no not too much head and they and then okay cut next take they're straight back to the that and they just they just can't
0: get it in they there, don't yeah. see it that
1: way right. that's how they see things. I had one operator say to me, I said to him how I wanted it done, and he goes, and I said, well, come on, get it back to, goes, oh, I was just trying to give good framing.
0: Said, <laughs> and you said that I was trying to give you a job. I was trying to, the the exactly. There's exactly. the door. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's choices. Get in a snarky fashion? Yeah, or?
1: yeah. I mean, there's choices you make. There's reasons. I have reasons why, you know, I want things framed certain ways, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of, you know, a framing Nazi about that and I will have people because to me it's not, just, it's not just the opening frame and the end of the frame it's everything in between every frame should be perfectly composed for what you're trying to get across it necessarily, necessarily has to be classical comp- composition all the way but for the look you're getting you know edge framing all psychological and emotional reasons and,
0: well th- let's just go straight into the middle of your career let's go to Monsters Ball and that's the middle I guess yeah
1: yeah, that was right after I came back. I moved back from Italy in 92 and started doing music videos and commercials. And I got a, uh, did a couple of comm- Steadicam jobs, and then I just decided I didn't want to do Steadicam anymore. I, just, I wanted to be a DP and only a DP. I would operate for some you know, bigger people, important people, or, or some exciting jobs. But Give us the last Steadicam you did. Um, the last Steadicam I did? Hmm, I can't even remember. I don't recall
0: okay. no. I, I ended up as far as like the last person who you wanted to for him I'll do it um,
1: I don't know I probably didn't get that job okay <laughs> <laughs> the anecdote at the end was though that the Garrett Brown had told me that that was a Steadicam that had been stolen because I did two master classes with him in Italy yeah. and uh, I did modifications on it and did all this stuff so it was totally you know unrecognizable as a one and eventually I, he said he wanted it for his Steadicam museum and I Talked to him a few months back. I said, you sure you, you really want it? Because I'm getting out of the basement. I'm going to pack it up in a thing. I'm going to take it over to your apartment over in L.A. And he goes, no, you know, I realize I have a one in the museum already. Just, you know.
0: So do you still do have it? that?
1: No, I actually took it to the UCLA um, um, recycling program and uh, scrap metal it and put the monitor into the. There's an, uh, they have the, all these things for like hazardous materials yeah. and all that yeah. so I put the monitor into the hazardous materials, the body into the scrap metal, stripped it all apart, the circuit boards all went into the hazardous materials and crushed it
0: very responsible
1: of you Yeah. well, so that steady cam is I feel like we should just put a, a little, memory pour a little crystal for the
0: yeah for the phone yeah. well, I cam.
1: sold the vest, yeah, and I sold the arm
0: oh, I got
1: gotcha. well, uh, you yeah. the arm the arm was good, it needed some upgrading, but it was good yeah. and then I gave the uh, the gimbal and a few other pieces to another steady cam operator that
0: I'd worked with who needed a spare so how does I mean, Monsters Ball is kind of a um, it's not an anomaly but at the height of independent films I would say mm-hmm. around the height of independent yeah. films um, you know at Lionsgate I think this was the last film that Jeff what, Jeff Sackman was at Lionsgate I could be don't wrong don't remember his name but he—he it was the it was head of, ahead of the head of the. I remember the time. two
1: two guys at Lionsgate at the time.
0: If I'm wrong, we'll just cut it out. Yeah, okay. But I could—I probably. End. You can check on. We'll it. check yeah. it. But the point is, is um, Lionsgate makes a, I believe it was a four million dollar picture, two and a half. Two and a half million dollar picture.
1: It came out in IMDb that it was four, four million. Four million. Production was two and a half million. They may have spent another million and a half to promote it. Maybe
0: right, but you're or saying to make prints. Start to, but finish, no, start to finish, above from, the line, above the line. Everything was two and a half, half million
1: dollars. Yeah, Billy, Bob, and Hallie all took you know flat, like small s-
0: fees. Schedule F or something like that.
1: I don't think they had those in those days, but I, I know exactly what they got paid, but I won't say it.
0: That's but funny. Billy
1: Bob got more than anybody. Everybody else got the same, and it was pretty low.
0: Right. And where did you shoot it again? New Orleans. It was in New Orleans. Yeah. So this is uh, uh, speaking about composition. So much of the movie is through a barrier, mm-hmm. through a window, from behind something, mm-hmm. something obscuring, we're looking like very long, and your wides are wides, and mm-hmm. you, have, you have a wide, you know, I don't know when, what lens it is, but it looks like a fairly wide lens, but then when you go in for a close-up, it's very long, on the lens. Where, was that, was this the beginning of a, of a, I mean, did you have a relationship already with, with, with it's Mark Forrest. Mark, or? yeah. Yeah, Mark? it was our third film. It's your third film together. Yep. Okay, so. First want, film with a budget. With any budget. With any budget. Well, so
1: what was the first one? first one was called Loungers. Okay. And it was no budget. Yeah. We shot it with my Paton and it got shown at Slamdance, the first Slamdance. It won the audience award at Slamdance, but it couldn't get released because they couldn't get the music rights.
0: It never got released because of the it never music Never got rates.
1: released because of the music rights. Tell me, what's the story of Loungers? It's basically a, two guys, and actually a, two couples, and one guy, they have this uh, scam they want to produce a, an album of lounge music they want to be lounge singers and they decide that to get the money they're going to kill the parents because they're sort of like sick or you know so the they insurance Alzheimer's whatever. What? they're going to get the insurance money to, to make the record
0: and everything goes wrong
1: and everything goes kind of goofy right but not wrong it's, it's, a, it's a puzzle it's based on a play actually oh really and I forget what the name of the play was um, it's got a odd name but anyhow, it was, it was uh, some actors who've become known and gone on to, you know, not giant fame, but careers. substantial careers since then. And Mark, of course, has gone right. on to his well, substantial gone on career. Well, he's a huge, substantial. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you, so you go and you make Monsters we did, Ball. We did
1: Loungers, and then we did another movie called Everything Put Together, right? which I think the budget was fifty or $75,000, uh-huh. something like that. And we shot that on mini-DV. Wow. We were trying to you know, get into that, into that, that whole... The step. And it was the, one of the first that was done that way. And for some reason, Chuck and Buck keeps getting all the notoriety, but we actually premiered at the same Sundance that Chuck and Buck did, shot the same year, and I think we were actually finished before they did. But I don't know why. Maybe it's because Miguel Arteta has a bigger... I don't know. I'm not sure why, but Chuck and Buck got more notoriety. But we shot a mini-DV... PAL, mini-DV, wow. uh, all transferred through Swiss Effects um, because they, the 25 frame was a better quality image, and they did the production to 24 for projection, and it got blown up to 35 and got a theatrical release for a short time. And it's available on DVD. Word and nice. it's, a, it's a it's a modern uh, emotional horror film about a woman who loses her baby, and all of her friends sort of ostracize her, and she has these nightmares about the baby and freaks out. And Roda Mitchell starred in it. And she's gone oh, really? now to... I see she now has a new TV series. Yeah, she does. Yeah. And she was great. So Ma- And Megan Mullally was yeah. in it. Not playing a couple. Oh, really? Book. Yeah. And, she's uh, great, actually. She's very yeah, really She's fun. really great. Yeah. And uh, I'm trying to think of else names that you would know. Kathy Burns was in it. I don't know what she's actually done since then. But the funny thing is, if you, if you watch the movie and hear Kathy Burns' voice... You'll see that Megan Mullally used Kathy Burns' voice for that Will and Grace show. <laughs> <laughs> that voice that she put on is Kathy it, Burns. It is Kathy voice. Burns. That's because yeah, they were best friends. Oh, I see. And she kind of just co-opted her voice. It was very funny.
0: So the films you've shot with Mark Forrester, you've shot Monsters Ball, the the Bond film. Yeah, yeah, One of Souls.
1: Oh, I always try to remember them all. Um, Monster's Ball was the first, then we did Finding Neverland.
0: Finding Neverland, great, picture. Then beautiful we did picture. Stay. Stay, yeah.
1: Which is one of my favorites. Uh-huh. Nobody's
0: seen it, but it's one of my
1: favorites. Yeah, yeah yes. Yeah. Then we did, after Stay, I think we did Stranger Than Fiction.
0: Right, which is another great picture.
1: Then we did The Kite Runner. mm mm-hmm. Then we did, uh, Quantum of Solace. Then we did Machine Gun Preacher. Right. I think that was the last... The last one—it's like eight or nine films altogether.
0: Mm-hmm. What what what's that
1: relationship like? It's great, it's great because we have a, we, we we see things the same way. We appreciate the same architecture and art and style. Um, mm-hmm. Although he's a better dresser than I am, um, um, but we both have the same kind of aesthetic. Uh, his Swiss German and my German heritage, living in Europe. What guess, is that?
0: What is that aesthetic?
1: Bauhaus, um, clean modern um, uh, Neutra architecture, Bauhaus architecture. Um, Is most
0: of your furniture Danish?
1: Yeah. 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 Damn. I have a lot of, lot a lot of, of Frem, frem and, uh,
0: yeah.
1: and Hans Wagner. And, Some Corbusier? No, I don't have any Corbusier. Those chairs are too uncomfortable. I think oh, the, the, no. the Grand Confer. Wait, wait, wait,
0: wait, which one? Are you talking about the lounge chair? Oh, the lounge
1: chair. I almost got one of those once, but I yeah. didn't have room for it. No, I'm You're talking about, about the, the, yeah the grand with, with the grand the comfort, comfort, yeah, which is it. The, but it but it looks so fucking good. They look great, but yeah. it's the worst. It's it's the most yeah. inappropriate name for a piece of furniture because it's not grand comfort at all. It yeah, is very uncomfortable. So they you look, have, look great in a doctor's office. So the Wegener Perfect. you
0: have is the chair.
1: No, the vegner I have a Wegener table. Oh, veneer a a table, dining, dining table.
0: What about and do you have a Gucci? I don't know my my. has uh, been overused at this point. I know yeah. my
1: my first assistant had one of those and then he broke the glass on it. He got it from his father. No, I have a. A Aldo, it's a, actually an Italian, um, what's the guy's name, Aldo, I forget his name now, a marble and brass coffee table. Can
0: you send us stills of your... Furniture? Yeah, sure. I'm dead serious. Yeah, so no, I we'll, can. We'll in fact, up.
1: I just, unfortunately, and not to throw a pall or anything, but no. my mother passed away just before Christmas, and sorry, she lives in New York, or lived mm-hmm. in New York, and um, I've just been, go- I'm going back there again in April to... Clean out her apartment and bring all her furniture, which is all the furniture that I grew up with, and which all was all originally purchased Danish, Danish modern, modern, bought in Armonk, New York, floors. in the 60s. No. It's it's not super super big Name. names, but it's pieces that are all recognized, right? You know, it's it's pretty amazing stuff. And I'm just going to bring it all back and refurnish. And I have a house in New Orleans too, so someone's going to go to New Orleans, and someone's going to go here. That's fantastic. Yeah, That's no, fantastic. I love so. Mark, Mark loves you know the also same, the clean modern clean and modern and, look. and the stink photographs, you know Gursky and, right. and all sorts of different. Uh, like,
0: so, but then tell us how you got the sort of the gritty appearance. I mean, obviously when you're in um, Halle Berry's, it, well, never mind Halle Berry's apartment, but even uh, Billy Bob Thornton and his father, Christopher, Christopher, not Peter, Lord, Peter, Peter Boyle. Boyle, Peter Boyle. Yeah, sorry, when, when you're when you're in Billy Bob Thornton, Peter Boyle's house, yeah. it's pretty white trashy. Oh yeah. So how do you? I mean, if you, it, it, it. This is the difference between designing what you like versus designing what it is, and then shooting it in the way that you like, or photographing it in the way that you like. So, is is it tough to sort of work again? I mean, does it influence your the composition, or is it? Is it, are you more concerned about what the, what the scene is that you're shooting at? the well,
1: it's it's you know you have to work with what you have. You right. have to try to you have to try to work with the production designer to make things. Coalesce for the image that you want, and you know we were both pretty strong about that. Mark was a little less in the beginning. Mark was a little less uh, insistent or determined about design elements. He's gotten stronger about it over the years. Um, but we had such a low budget too. I mean, we went into this room, and he insisted. I mean, it was the room we had. This house that we had gotten couldn't tell the owner of the house certain elements of the script because they would never have approved us. They were strong Baptists and wouldn't let us do things that. In the script, it. but um, the, the living room was just, you know, it was all white, it was horrible, it was un, unusable, so, but uh, we were able to get in there and put on, you know, wall paneling and tack it up and, you know, fix it so it had more of a,
0: texture. you know,
1: texture and, and a little darker brought it down and it more felt like a kind of a white trash paneled, you know, guy's yeah. yep. home, things home. like that, you know, we tried to work with, but... You know, you, you, it's a place. It's a very low budget. You get there, and this is what you got to do, and you don't have a lot of time. We had twenty-five
0: days to shoot the film. So, let's talk about the scene where Heath Ledger kills himself. Yes. Yeah. Um, he shoots himself in the chest, the center of the chest. Yeah. Was that
1: as scripted, or was it I used? have no idea? I honestly okay. don't remember why but he why it went that way. It just but it, it's
0: it's just one of the most It's, it's a completely shocking moment. Yeah. Yeah, you just don't see it coming at all, you know. No,
1: because he doesn't go like that. He doesn't go like that. It's like it's just it's more like wow, what what just
0: yeah. Well, it's also I think the last thing he says he says you don't love me. Well, I've always always loved loved you. you. And then he then he. It's completely unforgettable. I saw it once, and you know, um, so. Tell us about the, des- the, the the desire to shoot so much through windows or through obstruction or something like that. Was that just was that conscious or was it just because you were trying to get the camera away from the actors?
1: No, it's not trying to get the camera away from the actors. It's just um, something that that just felt to me. You know, I don't know. I can't even say how I rationalized at the time. But I don't have. I probably have notes somewhere because I take notes on everything that we do and, and or everything that I do. And actually, starting with that film, Mark and I knew that we had no time. To really shoot the film. I mean, it was a very short schedule. So we sat in pre-production and we mapped out every scene. And I planned every shot in every scene beforehand, which is then a tradition that he decided to carry on through everything we did. Because I said, well, we got time. He said, no, no, I love how we do that. Let's do that again. So we sit for weeks and get blueprints of every set or every location. And Have I've you ever worked. abandoned the planet? We do when it... Seems when you're at when you're there and you go well, you know this is going to work better let's do this or this or this leads to something else but we go in with a, with a plan so basically you know where the lighting and the dolly tracks are basically going to go the art department knows things the ad gets a good jump on things it really helps a lot
0: how much of this is about coverage versus saying in your mind you're pre editing the scene it's pre editing the scene okay it's so or, it's not you're not covering the scene you're pre editing well the scene where they're going to get a piece well, here a piece it, here
1: well it, it's supposed to have been that in my mind. It was that. It was, you know, this is for the master we come to do that. We have the coverage of this piece. And but Mark has ter- tended to like to have his options. So almost every setup that we do becomes a master, runs through the entire action again. So he has it all again from every shot. But it uh-huh. was, it's really intended as a way to, to get your coverage, what's needed. And some scenes I said, this is all we need. Push in, get this played as a single master. So kind of
0: when we enter into uh, Billy Bob's house the first time, and you know he comes out of the bedroom, yeah,
1: yeah, he comes out, and then and Peter Boyle comes out of the room, and you do that move down around there, and shooting, shooting to cover, considering the edit, knowing that I I would say like you're never going to use this piece for that, so why don't we just pick it up from here and we can get that and those kind of things.
0: So is there ever a situation that you came into because I mean the the only. The thing I'm noticing is that you, 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 or hesitation, is that you prepare all these shot lists before. You map out, you're going to make the scene look like this, look like this. Then you get there and the actors take a completely different blocking or a position to what yeah. you've mapped out. What happens then?
1: We rethink it Okay. on the fly, which, you know, sometimes on every, some films are like that entirely. I've, friends, I've had friends be very frustrated because they get to the set and the director doesn't even have a shot list until he watches the blocking in the morning. And then they spend half a day figuring out how to shoot it, right. and then they shoot for four hours. Um, I like to be more prepared, and you know, but you have to be able to, you know, to go with it. And if you see something that they're doing, and sometimes you, you try to suggest that maybe they should try something else. And it depends on who the actor is. Some actors are great. On Monsters Ball, I don't think we ever deviated from the plan. Billy Bob and Hallie were so—they said, "Oh, you want
0: me to do that? Okay, I'll go from here to there. It's fun. Do you need us to stop? Or? No, you're good. Right. Okay um so, so so um in ter- in terms of uh uh there's one scene I want to ask you about Monster's Ball Sean Combs before he's executed sort of sitting in this very tepid room speaking to his son
1: oh yeah yeah in, it, just looks,
0: the, it just looks it just looks it just looks beautiful to me to my eye yeah. um what did that just sort of come out of the actual room, or? or... Yeah,
1: well, we had we had scouted the prison,
0: yeah. and we
1: knew what the room and the feeling was like. That, and and just to try to give you that feeling of you know desperation and isolation and sadness. What's your approach to lighting? Because it, it as ba- natural as possible, as natural natural, as natural possible. sourced as possible. Right. Until you're into a room where it doesn't really matter, or fantasy sequences, or something. You know, yeah. a nightclub or, or a bar or whatever. You do. I try to use, you know, if there's a window, I try to use the window. I'll walk into a location space before we're shooting and see what it's like. And so see if you were lighting
0: they're... this, you probably would have used these as your means. Probably, yeah. No, yeah. no, no criticism of it. You heard his feelings. <laughs> he's, he's, gone, he's crying. He's crying now. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's weeping. Gone off
1: and crying. <laughs> Sad. I've okay. seen that happen to,
0: to, to directors too. When they go off crying. When, when they, go off crying. they go off crying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what other sequences do you looked at from Monster's Ball that eventually you really, really loved the look of?
1: Um, I don't know. I, I'm really proud of how that film came out, considering also that we had no money and it was such a short schedule. Yep. There's some, you know, we're giving some homage to, to John Wayne, John Ford, John Wayne movies. There's a shot when Billy Bob comes out of the house holding the shotgun when the kid, they come up and push in up on him looking up. That,
0: <laughs> you're, th- you're thinking yeah. of Stagecoach, of yeah, course. Yeah, exactly. The shot
1: that made John yeah. Wayne a star. Yeah. There's, there's, um, um, I don't know, there's just a lot of, it's just a feeling, it's a whole thing. I I don't don't dissect it into specifics.
0: Finding Neverland I
1: have more specific shots on that I'm proud of. Let's talk about Finding Neverland. Because specific shots that I came up with totally, you know, and suggested. Let's
0: talk about Finding Neverland for a second, because this is one where, uh, I was speaking also with, um, I think it was Salvatore Mm Tatino, and I talked about period pieces. There's this whole thing about, People get it. I think. I think it's out of a, you know, a sort of a too many options. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how do I decide on something aesthetically? Because as a photographer, you are faced with infinite options. Mm-hmm. And so, talking about you know Cinderella Man, you know, he did make it very dark. A lot of people think, you know, well, there's less light and period. But this movie is very creamy, mm-hmm. and it's it, the look to it is very. It's almost like alabaster. Like you're 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 you're, you're touching a porcelain, mm-hmm. you know, sculpture the whole time the skin tones all seem to between all the all the actors all seem to have so this sort of beautiful, smooth quality and, and 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 the environments all kind of have the smoothness to them. Um and it all works mm-hmm. in a in a way that it might I, I mean I believe if I watched it again it would still see that natural approach that you have as natural as possible. But it's also very pretty. How did you go about like sort of figuring that one out was it just was it production design or was it
1: um no it was a combination of just the desire of making all the actors look good um and being that it's you know it's a it's a it's a, it's a sweet film it's an emotional film mm-hmm. and i didn't want to play too much on you know building up harsh in any way with with the lighting or do uh-huh. anything that was you know that would sort of drag you in one direction or another. I think it was it was important that you see all the actors to their best. It's kind of kind of a bit like a fantasy yeah. at the same time.
0: So you use a lot of diffused lighting,
1: heightened um, reality. I would say on that. Uh, yeah, I used a lot of diffusion on that. A lot of soft lighting, um, directional but soft. Mm-hmm. Um, And just trying to, you know, keep it in that world because it's always continually going between reality and fantasy Mm -hmm. and trying not to give you any clues, pre-clues, about, okay, now this is reality, this is fantasy. It's like always, it could shift into the fantasy moment at any time. So by by keeping that kind of softer, rounder beauty lighting as much as possible, uh, but sensibly, you know, not wanting to beauty light somebody in a situation where it's absurd that, you know, they're in a, sitting by the window like this and they're flat lit from the front. Right.
0: Um, you know, but, <laughs> but still make them look good. Right. but The movie's about Sir James Barry meeting this family and sort of getting the inspiration from right. the Peter And Pan. and going
1: into his fantasy world because he's very childish. In, he's portrayed as having this very childish, you know, um, childlike, I should say, uh, ability to fantasize and to transcend the daily reality and, you know, forget about his wife and all the family problems he was having at home, and just go into this other world.
0: And when you read the script, just, I mean, people have raved about this script. Mm-hmm. It was a script that sort of rose out from... Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty... It was all there. Right. It was a very strong,
0: good, beautiful And so you script. just felt that you had to make this thing look, look straight up pretty. Yeah. Um, what are some of the sequences that you mentioned that you particularly were proud of? Um, By the way, bigger budget sure. on this one? 20 million. Okay. So we went so now, from two and a half million to 20 million. 20 million. And okay. to us, and it was is, like, wow. Wow. Yeah. Now, is that a little yeah. bit, as a DP, I, again, this is something people watching this, I think, should know, is it a little bit nerve wracking? Is there a negative side, or is it just all good to have more um, resources? Is there a downside?
1: The downside is that they still treat it in a way that it's no money, and no matter how much money you have, it's never really enough. Who's they? The producers, and you start. Well, you start also thinking, well, now we've got this. We should be able to do this. And it's like, we want to do this. And now your, your $500 camera package is a $50,000 camera package. And you don't have enough money for that. You know, it's just, you have to still watch things. You still have to. Have no matter how to. big it gets, it's always too small, they say. Right.
0: It seems to be. So in other words, you know, like, you know, oh, great, I can have a, a techno crane Right. for 20 days. No, right, really you yeah. can only afford it for five. Or two. Or ten. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, oh, wow, with that much money we should be able to do... Yeah, but, you know, the, the production design is now going to cost 7,000 times more than the last one did. And the costume department is using a million dollars worth of costumes. You know, so... What can you do? Your your ratio is still... You're still a small, small percent of what Piece you can do. Pie. So you try to... But you still, you know... <coughs> And you have a few more days to shoot, but it's still, it's a much more ambitious film. So do you really have that much more to shoot? No, you still have a tight schedule.
0: How many, how many days, was that like a 40-day shoot? Or um,
1: God, I'm trying to remember, that was so long ago. Monsters Ball I remember because, specifically because it was either 23 or 25 days. I think it was 25. I think it was probably 32 days. So, really, not Not a whole lot more. Yeah, more
0: crew. Yeah. Instead, of, instead of 30 people running around, you have 60 people, 70 people running around, 100 yeah. people running around. But a completely British crew that I didn't know. Which is also nerve wracking to very work with people, you know, because very they difficult. also have ways of working. They, and they,
1: they do, or ways of not the, working. That <laughs> it, no, it was very. But uh, you're not saying about
0: all of England. You're just no, saying you're that just saying, particular
1: movie. Per, right. Oh, yeah. No, because I just worked in England again. Um, on the Family Tree T V yeah. series. We did the first four episodes there and had a great English crew that really worked well and
0: it just yeah. happened to be that you, you fell yeah. into the it wrong was the wrong group. Yeah. So what do you do when you're in that situation and you're you sharing at a struggle.
1: You struggle, you get nervous, you
0: can you fire people or has it just become mm, the minute no. you do that it's just gonna send no. a shockwave through the Yeah,
1: because then you're the you're the foreigners come in and fired the people who always work together and Yeah. You, know, you just, you know, you, you bear with it and you have sleepless nights and you get ulcers
0: and. So you wanted to be getting nightmares. 30 setups a day and you were getting 22. No, it's
1: not even that. It was the, the, the compromises of what you have to make with what you ask for and what actually gets delivered and the response you get from people and, you know, just attitudes. and.
0: So like. people actually turn to you say, like, you know, put this light in front of this whatever and, and put it here and why would you do that? I didn't get that about the lights because the lights, I basically
1: said where every light should go to the department and just had to deal with things like equipment that was that they used that I would never use like these magic arms that they would put a little something on and halfway through the shot they kept falling and, but they weren't watching I, I'm not going to get too much into this but, but you remember those no, things but, oh I, I definitely remember it um, no, I had shots I had things where, where I would say something to somebody about where I thought the focus should be and I would get the look of like really why would you want to put the focus on that <laughs> You know, because so the shots. The good I thing, the focus but the to good things <laughs> the good things about that film. Yeah. There were several shots that I that I project I proposed to Mark and went over really great. We had this scene where um, Barry and his wife go up the stairs after the, the dinner and uh, she's they have separate bedrooms and she's gonna go into hers and he's his and he says good night. and there's a little bit of tension between them and she opens up the door and goes into her bedroom. And he opens the door and goes into his. And I said, the day before, I said, wouldn't it be great? Because the next scene, and I'm always really watching for transitions.
0: Which is the a cuts. huge thing for, for real really cinematographers. Important. It's
1: really important. You yes. want to know where the scene's going to cut to. And you, And I try to, when I can, make give the editor something that makes a really nice transition. They don't always use it. Sometimes they decide to do something else. But if you can give them something. So in this one, I said, wouldn't that be great? The next scene is there. He's out in the park with, with the family flying going to teach him to fly a kite, and they're having a the picnic. I said, wouldn't it be great if instead of, he goes in close closes the door, fade to black, whatever, come up, next day he's out, he opens the door, and it's, he goes through, and you see that it's the park. And he just walks into the park, because that's sort of his whole fantasy world, is that he's getting away from this, from his wife, and from this, this reality, and this is where his now, his new fantasy and his new reality is this family and with the kids. And so I said, let's do a green screen and have him go in there, and we can shoot a plate. And of course, the room that he was going into wasn't really a room. It was a closet. It was about as deep from, you know, here to the wall. And it was a curved thing. But we managed to put a green screen in there and light it enough that we could get. So he just opens the door, steps in, and closes the door behind him, and we got enough to Pretty put big room. challenge if it's
0: that tight enough to get it was, a splash on him.
1: Yeah. Well, we had to clean it up in post, you know. Right. It was my first DI. It
0: was oh, an really? Early, it was
1: an early DI. So they were talking, it was what, 2003? 2003. 2003. Yeah, that's early. It was an early DI. I think yeah. the only DI... It was at an e-film, and the only one they had done before that, a full DI. Old was uh, No, it was, uh, well, Old Brother was just before that, too, and before that was We Were Soldiers, the uh, Mel Gibson. Right. Yeah.
0: Which is a, a totally Which different.
1: a totally different thing, but it, they did a full DI. On yeah, it. yeah. And uh, so yeah. it was, it was um, and it worked, and it was, I'm really proud of that shot. Another shot is. What
0: stock was it, by the way?
1: I don't know, even remember what we used then. It was a, a nine. It was it was the equivalent of nineteen at the time. It was a five hundred ASA, 500, I'm sure, yeah, okay. but I don't because of the, because 90. of the situation. But I yeah. don't remember, you know, the amount of light I could use. Mm-hmm. Um, another shot is when the, they're at the play and they see you know the Peter Pan character and she says, uh, uh, "I think a dying is such a big adventure," and I said at that point, "It really this is where." the kid is having that impact because his mother is dying and he has the reality and this whole revelation to him. So said, let's start, and then the kite, Peter Pan supposed to fly off with the kite, let's start off on the tail of the kite, and can we do, make a move, that we go up and go right up into the balcony, into the kid's face. And so I talked to the visual effects people and to Mark, and figured a way, and there was we got two Milo motion control rigs and married two real shots together. But I said, I don't want it just going up. And I did design this whole thing where it goes up and it flies around and has to circle and see the theater and capture the, the, this fantasy flight of how a kite would really be and swoop up and land in the kid's face. And we were able to do it with two Milo rig shots, practically, and just do a, a marriage between the two shots. And little visual effects clean up here and there and take some things out of the shot and all and did that. But when you finally, saw, when it. I finally saw it, it was like, it's this, whew, this breath, which I really loved. And then the final one of the that I remember of those was we were setting up to shoot the last shot of the film, but we didn't know it was going to be the last shot of the film. It's when um, Barry and the kid are sitting on the bench, yep. and they have this talk, and I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm saying to Mark, I'm there, the day before, I think, we were scouting it. I said, wouldn't it be great if when they're sitting on the bench... Mm-hmm because it's really the end of the film, we're on the bench, and they disappear, they dissolve. And you're just left with the bench and maybe his hat or the cane or something. something. Because it's, now it's eternity. You know, the kids, they're going off to the rest of their life. Whatever happened, it doesn't. it's just a way to get into, it's the fan, continuing the fantasy thing of it, too. And Mar- I remember Mark going, he almost jumped up and I he goes, oh, thank you, now I have the last shot for the film. Now we have it. And I said, oh, great, it's so Perfect. And he said, but, but can we be moving when it's happening? Okay, well, now... And that, I, said, I said, yeah, yeah, but I mean, kinda... we're going to have to get motion control to do that because we right. can try it. But then the VFX people were with us. Kevin Haug, who did all the VFX, it was great, said we really need to do it with the motion control because of the bench and the slats and, you know, it had to be frame accurate. It's just impossible. So we got, from the mill, we got a, 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 just a simple motion control dolly, yeah. a sled. Yeah. And, of course, the first time we shot it, the motion control rig failed. Failed. So we had to go back and reshoot that A second day was one of our few things that we went and did a reshoot. But you got it. But we got it, and it's, you know, it was magical. It's just, you know, it said so much about the story, the story and the film, and people love it, and I love it, and I'm really proud of it.
0: So let's go to Quantum of Solace, the other story. I was doing
1: this low-budget
0: film in,
1: uh, in New Orleans, a writer-director and his wife who co-wrote it with him. It was their true story they'd done this fictional accounting of their true story and um, he he was directing and he uh, self-financed it and the whole thing and uh, we're shooting at the airport and he and his wife are sitting in the director's and the writer's chairs wearing the headphones we had cut and uh, I'm sitting at the camera and the actors are sitting in the car it's a scene where he's dropping the guy's dropping the The woman off at the airport, she's going back to Michigan. And we're waiting for something. I don't remember what it was. We're, We're between takes. And I see them in the car, and they're talking. And then I look over, and I see the director, and his face just goes white. And his wife's face goes white. The sound man left the sound on, left the mics on. And they're in the car saying, basically, this director's an idiot, doesn't know what he's doing. The script is so stupid. If I was directing this film, I would have done this. I would have done that. These people have no idea what they're doing. Let's just go on, you know, just go along for the ride and get our paychecks and get out of here. It's like
0: really awful. I got to tell you. Really awful. I've been through the exact same thing. Really? Exact same thing. Really? Yep. Yeah. I mean. In fact, I, I, to, 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 to be fair about it. Yeah. I actually like walked over to the sound person and said, give me the cans. Yeah. Right, because yeah. I knew it was oh. happening.
1: Oh, and you wanted to hear
0: it. I, I just was just sick of it. I was right. just Sick of the yeah, the double yeah. talk. So yeah. and it's harrowing. Yeah, it's completely harrowing. Yeah. It's just because because it's like that person has every right to have that conversation privately, sure, which they think they're doing, sure. But now you you're eavesdropping. You know what I mean? And, yeah, and it you know. It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. Anyway. But they, weren't, they didn't ask to hear it. They didn't it ask was, to hear it. it, was, was, it was, the sound man yeah, was yeah. just stupidly Stup- left, left, Le- it left it on. Left it on. And
1: these people were contentious with him the whole time during the script. I mean, during the whole shoot, yeah. they would like, he would say things, and they just didn't want to do the characters the way he had written them to be, and he wanted them to be. And they would say, my character would never do that. And he goes, what do you mean your character would never do that? I did that. This is I'm, my uh, true story. He goes, well, it was, very, it was a very odd situation. Yeah. Anyhow. Anyway. That was the worst one I was part of. So I wasn't he, part of the Stallone when I first no. heard about it.
0: <laughs> you never worked for Rennie?
1: Uh, no, but I interviewed with him for a... Oh, you did? I interviewed with him for a movie that I don't know if he ever did. Um, and my wife interviewed him for another movie. He's an interesting guy. I like him Where as a person. She's a costume designer. designer right? I forget which... Oh, she interviewed for him with him for the New Orleans film he did, 12 Rounds.
0: I'll, t- I'll tell you what, what makes me um, the most interested about, about Rennie Harlan is that... Um, we got to get back to your movies, yeah. but... But is that if you there's a book of favorite scenes from directors naming their favorite scenes in movies, mm. and his is the love scene in Don't Look Now, which is completely incongruous to yeah. what you would think he would yeah. you know like, oh that final scene in Die Hard with the roof blows up you would right. think that would be you know, right. but it's not. It's, so I always love finding out that some director who gets nailed doing certain kind of films actually has a taste for mm-hmm. something completely you know.
1: We uh, Mark and I based one of our one of the love scenes that we shot on that. Oh, don't look down. And don't look down. It's a classic. Which I'm trying to remember now. Which it was
0: for. Um, was it? Was it probably? It was probably Halle and. Uh... Talk us so. about shooting that thing. Was, think... it, was it? Was it? Was it as? Was it supposed to go where it went with Halle Berry and?
1: Um, it was. It was up to them.
0: So, basically, they. But, but you, 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 you see, Billy Bob's over He says, "I think he says, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here." Like he says that yeah. out loud. Yeah. And you, it's like one of these great ironic moments or lack of ir- irony where it looks like it's both him and the character speaking at the exact same time. Right. Was that, what, was that what it was? No, I
1: think that was, he was being in character totally, just basically saying, you know, he does not from, from her. What, is, what does she want from him, really? What is, where really should this go? Yeah. And did she really want, you know, to go that direction? Um, but the way it was planned was they gave us two options. We could either plot out every shot and... Get the okay from them and shoot it, you know, shot by shot like that. Or just let them go at it, let us shoot, and that they would see the dailies before anybody else, and that they would be able to censor anything that they didn't want in whatever it was, we had to just allow them to cut out anything. And did they ask to cut out? And anything? we did that and they cut out thirteen seconds of whatever things that we would have cut out anyhow. Right. Basically where you saw, you know, the sock or you saw whatever. Right. Yeah. No, they were, they were like so just amazingly
0: good with it. and just let us go. Amazing. Okay, so, you, you know, we, finding that we have Monster's Ball. We have Finding Neverland. <laughs> we go from a $2 million movie to $2.5 million movie to a $20 million movie. Now we're on Quantum of Solace. Well,
1: you skipped a couple of smaller movies too. but We skipped a couple yeah. of smaller movies,
0: but we're on yeah. Quantum of Solace.
1: Yeah. $250 million, I think.
0: 250, or $225 something like so, that. So ironically, we're talking multiply by 10 again. Yeah. Still things that you couldn't afford? Actually,
1: actually, the budget on Quantum of Solace was bigger than all of the other movies I've done combined. Still anything you couldn't afford? Um, no, it wasn't anything I couldn't afford. Yeah, 65 millimeter. I wanted to shoot 65 for the whole show. Uh, and it wasn't. it wasn't that they couldn't afford it. They decided it wasn't worth spending the extra money for 65 because of the they said the look the difference wasn't good enough wasn't enough to warrant shooting in 65 and plus we had you know several units going on at one time and for the action unit it would have been really tough and in the end i'm actually glad because i i've, I've had a whole turnabout on 65 millimeter i'm really not a big fan of it with today's film stocks Just because of how
0: cumbersome it is
1: or no the way it
0: looks because it's so so much It's detail. so clean
1: it looks like hd right it's so if, if I was shooting with film stock from the, you know, from the 50s or the 60s, or even the 70s, or if I was shooting you know, film stock like uh, Lawrence of Arabia, 65mm makes a difference. Beautiful. Sense. It's great. Four times the negative. But, but the film didn't have the grainlessness that it has now. Yes. And it's so grainless now when you shoot. I mean, I saw the master. You're actually
0: looking more, on 65mm, I think you're actually looking more at the aberrations of the lens than anything.
1: The depth of field and, yeah. and that kind of stuff. But it's, for me, it's not enough. Of a, of a shift or of a change, to warrant that clean look. I think if I was shooting on 65, I would maybe for the depth of field, I would go there, but I would I would push the stock or do something because it, I was I watched Batman, you know, Dark Knight Rises and The Master, and they both looked like they were shot on HD. Those the IMAX portions and the 65 mm stuff just looked, right. it looked too clean. It, right. it was I didn't find it appealing. Right, right. But so that was the one thing that we couldn't afford. Where right. they nixed because it was going to cost... But a,
0: apart from that, how many days of shooting? Like 100 days of shooting or something? Uh, yeah, 100 days. 100 days of shooting. First unit and 96 days, second unit. Second unit. Now, who was your second unit DP?
1: Uh, Sean O'Dell. Had to use a Brit.
0: Had to use a Brit. Yeah. You gave him instruction. You gave him Gave directions. him instructions, Good but he was with also the
1: first... Yeah, great relationship, but he was also with the second unit director who had his own way of doing things. Okay. And I tried to you know, explain to him and Mark to things that we don't like or do like, and he... You know he's he's got his own way and that's his trademark and you couldn't rein him in completely but I think he did a great job yeah you know I'm just not a big fan of the sharper shutter slower you know shooting 23 frames
0: but they insisted on
1: that he did the director the second unit director yeah that's his way of shooting he did did. he did the second born and the third born movies second unit stuff and it's all that yeah high high shake high high shake and all that and I and, and cutting every three frames and I hate it. Right. I just don't find it exciting. I find it it's artificial. Well, yes, it's it's to put excitement in where you don't really have excitement.
0: Right. Or to but add, add, add visual to, yeah. confusion. Yeah,
1: and to yeah. give a headache. Yeah. So, so
0: so so this is great because there's so many great pictures that so we could talk about. Did you see Stay? I never saw Stay.
1: So you've got to see Stay.
0: So 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 we'll talk about you've that. in about see that Five seconds. Okay.
1: Did you see Stranger in Fiction?
0: Yeah. I love yeah. That. Stranger so cool. than Fiction, I think, was 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 um, I think I think had the, the the credit of being a film made where they had the confidence because of a Charlie Charlie Kaufman esque mm-hmm. vibe in the air that the studio or the whoever financed it here I don't know if it was independently financed or kind of some major it was company, uh, QED, QED or whoever it was who
1: did it Oh it was um, the symbol the kid playing the drum
0: was, Oh with an M starts with an M yeah not Marvista no No. not um, what's her name Lindsay
1: Doran was the producer but 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 there's a
0: confidence in doing this kind of a film and well straight into the fiction was okay so tell us about Stay what's Stay about
1: Stay is about um, psychological thriller story guy Adrian Brody no no No, that was uh, that was what was that one called
0: um, Fuck it. No, this is
1: stays about basically it's a car accident on the Brooklyn Bridge. The guy gets up and walks away from it. Um, people, you know, stop and see him. You know, he gets up and walks away from it. He goes out into his life, and all everything that happens is kind of bizarre. He's a student, and he meets this doctor, psychiatrist, but it's not his regular psychiatrist that he goes to. And their lives intersect, and they kind of become completely entangled between the doctor. And the guy, it was Ryan Gosling and uh, Ewan McGregor. And then Naomi Watts plays the girlfriend of the doctor. And Bob Hoskins is in it. He plays, um, he plays the father, Ryan Gosling's father, I think.
0: So what, what is it you love about the film so much visually?
1: It, just, it, was, it was a film to experiment, just to go out there and just do, because we just could just do everything. It was all, all the stuff happening in the mine. It was basically an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge in a different, form that kind of a story Fantastic. Um, and we did very specific transitions from almost every scene dependent on who was appearing in which scene and the next scene if it was going from ryan's character to ewan's character there was a definite transition if it was going from their characters to naomi there was a complete different dis, dis- um but it was just a real. It was a wonderful challenge to work out all these transitions and come up with them and execute them, and to work in this fantasy world, fantasy reality world. And shooting in New York was fabulous. And the production designer did an amazing job, and we had great sets and great real locations to work with. And um, and Ryan is a brilliant, brilliant actor. Yeah, a fabulous guy. Uh, wonderful to work. Is with. he
0: when you watch him work? And w- I asked other cinematographers about him as well. Um, is there is there a point in time where he is going to go away from whatever the marks are and just do what it or, or can he actually do what he's going to do with that incredible fortitude and seemingly sort of James Dean-esque he, yeah, he on the much, mark?
1: He pretty much did it on the mark. That's amazing. He was very it rarely... Feel, it
0: feels with him as though it's like... It's organic. It's completely organic. It is. And but you he, would have no idea that he's actually hitting the mark.
1: But he's so... He's, so, he's such a good actor yeah. as far as the technical side of it too that he can he can work with everybody else who's making the movie. I right. mean, he knows, he understands that the it's process. all part of it. And he'll go to you you know, beforehand or, a, or after a first take or something and goes, you know, it didn't work for me that way. Can I, I really need to, or let me just go somewhere else, or let me just, can I just have this one free? Um, and, you know, when you work with people and you work with certain situations, you try to, I try to light with freedom also, mm-hmm. except for specific scenes and things where you have to have, you know, hard light in only one spot or this or that. Uh, And a lot of that comes out of doing documentaries and also working with Chris Guest where we've basically set up for 270 to
0: 360 degrees all the time because you never know what these people are going to do. Right. So uh, let's just finish up Quantum of Solace. The sequence at the end with this building in the middle of the Mm -hmm. desert that looks like it's architecture out of, well talk about Bauhaus, it's like Neo Bauhaus design.
1: It's uh, a real building. It's a re- oh, it's a real building. It's a real building. You could have fooled me. I a, was certain this well, was Well, a- it's a real building that then we recreated in two-thirds scale uh-huh. because we couldn't blow up the real building. Yeah. Doesn't um, that suck when you can't do it's that? It's really really yeah. frustrating. Yeah. Uh, we built... We, they recreated it in two-thirds scale on stage in London. But we shot all the exteriors of that same real building in Chile, in the, in the desert. It's an it's a, uh, observatory. It's a hotel and... Uh, um, restaurant, I guess, for the all these scientists who work at the observatory at night.
0: Any particular sequences you're really in love with from uh, Quantum
1: I kind of like the whole movie. Right. I, you know, I'm, I'm I think it's a I think it's a very underrated Bond film. I think it's uh-huh. great. It had some, definitely had some script problems, story problems. Um, we went into it without a full script. We had a writer strike. We had a pending actor strike. We had a release date. We had everything working against us and without a real script we were we were all sort of writing things along the way and giving ideas and coming up with things it was one where we started off doing a scout for the movie six months earlier driving around europe for 15 days through italy and spain and switzerland and, and uh, austria and a little bit of uh, yeah mostly switzerland mostly italy but then a little bit of switzerland and austria knowing a couple of places we were going to shoot and all the rest just like looking for locations and going, it would be great. We could do a car chase here. We could do a thing here. We could do... But we didn't have the car
0: chases or the other things to do yet. Because I because we didn't have the script yet. yet. Favorite, favorite favorite action sequence in the movie um, that, that you had to intercut with Second Unit?
1: Um, my favorite is probably another shot that I insisted on happening. The scene was where they go up the tower and they fall through the, the glass roof of the art gallery. Because I had seen what Dan Bradley did on, um, on Born, where Matt Damon is running, chasing a guy across the Moroccan rooftop, and he runs and he jumps across the roof and is going through the window, and the camera follows him and then stops and doesn't go in the window. And I wanted that camera to go in the window. I just wanted to follow him and continue the scene. So I said, Dan, we're doing this. we worked out this whole scene. They go up this tower. They're in Siena. They have a fight. They push off the tower. They're going to fall through this glass dome and into the art gallery and get caught on these scaffolding and things. And I said, I don't care how we do it. And I said to the VFX people too, I said, no matter what happens, this has to be a continuous shot. We have to make it work where it goes through, comes down below them, swings up, and sees them again from there. And working with Second Unit, who ended up shooting the plates in, on stage, I was, we were still in London at that time, so we were visiting the set, um, set up with Sean about how I wanted it lit, how it should move. And with the VFX people working out how the move could be, it was only three shots to combine, with some blue screen and, and the real thing. And they put the glass dome was all put in in VFX. There was no glass there. They did a great job. They had money to spend, uh, not a lot of time to finish it, but money to spend. And so that was for me is one of the great things because you get that whole the visceral thing of being there with them and going through the glass and swinging around and feeling that, you know, that spinning and all of that. So that, that's one of them. It's
0: interesting that you, that you, you, you envisioned the sequence and then had it because it's, it, it, you know, the natural lighting is kind of a total contrast mm-hmm. to the completely, you know, imaginative sort of like electric use of camera, the electric guitar camera right. that you're describing, you know what right. I mean? Right. So but it, kind of, but I tried
1: to light the tower and the dome and all of that stuff as, as nat- natural as I as could yeah. and still make it look dramatically interesting. You know, it, was, it, was, it was tough because we had that, it was one, it was on the Bond stage, but it wasn't tall enough right. for what we had to do. We were really up to the, the perms, and there was a blue screen above the guy's heads, probably like 12 feet above their heads. So it was, it was tight.
0: That's fantastic. It's
1: that scene, and I, I, I personally love the um, well, the whole fire scene at the end in the hotel, and the collapsing building and everything, and, and the, the special effects guys who did incredible, I mean, it's enhanced, the incredible real fire effects on
0: stage. It was th- that just fire amazing. is fantastic. It's because, amazing. CGI fire is every time somebody. It cleans, wasn't even
1: CGI fire. Was we shot plates of real fire and they
0: but enhanced that, it. No, but that's my yeah. point. Is that is that CGI fire is, is it's always getting better, but it still doesn't have the effect right. of fire. Right. And that fire. Oh, it was real, practical, and it just looks fantastic. Yeah. And when you know it, whenever you see an explosion in a, in, in a film, you know if it's real or it's yeah. been. Doctored and yeah. it just looks so much better when it's real. Uh, but that was a huge explosion. And the blowing up of the building at the end where they come out of the thing, that yeah. we built
1: four sections of the actual building, life size, that we couldn't blow up in, in Chile, where they jump out of the building. We built that up and actually blew that up and had
0: them jumping out. So, how it. much rigging is involved in blowing up uh, something like that? It's just. Ask Chris
1: Corbold. I mean, they, right. he did, he's, he's one of the most. Do you really brilliant... sort of
0: see it before and then come back yeah. when you're ready to shoot yeah. it? Yeah. And just place the cameras?
1: Yeah, and they show us. We do tests, and they show us rehearsals and tests, and they shoot tests. If we're not there, they'll shoot them on video and show us back.
0: And so when you shoot that, you're operating? I'm operating one of the cameras. I mean, that we had probably on that seven, seven cameras right. or whatever.
1: I was always C camera operator on that film.
0: Okay. So you're oper- you're operating, and when you see that thing blow up, how far away are you? You're about, what, like maybe 5,000? No. no. 5, like 1,000 no. feet?
1: No, I'd say probably the closest camera we had physically to that stuff was probably... 75 feet how, something like that. How loud is that exposure? it's oh, ridiculous. Earplugs yeah, ear and, yeah. and cuffs and all that.
0: Yeah. And the, the visual effect through the lens looking at that. It's, it's, it's,
1: it's mind-boggling, yeah. but it happens so fast. You know, you're shooting usually high speed, so you can capture more, even if you're going to bring it back to regular speed. Right. So you can have more frames to work with if they do touch-ups and clean How do you so, know what the exposure
0: is going to be? You just figure it out. Experience. You okay. figure it out. Okay. You guess.
1: Some guessing, some, some you know, tests and getting it right.
0: Was it exhilarating being able to now make it a $250 million? Oh, rate? yeah. It was a thrill.
1: It was, it was, a thrill. A, it was, it was fabulous. I loved doing it. Um, I wished I could have had some different people with me. I could have brought some of my trusted crew with me. But that being said, I ended up with um, you know, great, great collaborators, great crew, and um, best producers I've ever worked with, well, among the best producers I've worked with, they were great. The Broccolis and mm-hmm. Wilson were fabulous to work with. Right. Uh, I mean, they gave, if you needed something, they knew it was going to be on the screen, you got it. They knew what they you know, they know what their what people want. Right. Um, you know, you destroyed nine Aston Martins. <laughs>
0: That's, you got to have balls to do that. Yeah. So let's talk about, uh, about the, mo- the, the, the movies with Christopher Guest. Um, best in Show. You know, opens on uh, a psychiatrist dealing with a couple. Mm-hmm. Um, we were trying to—I think it's Parker Posey. Parker and, and uh, yeah. we were trying to do a new sexual position, the Congress of the Cow, and and he walked in and saw it. it hasn't been the same since. Cut to there's a dog. The dog, yeah, right. The dog is depressed. Yeah. Um, this movie, I mean, it's just—it's it, 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 just—it's—it's it's not parody. It's my—it's. I think. It, 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 can we credit Christopher Guest with inventing the mockumentary genre or? Um, not really, I don't think, because he co wrote
1: Spinal Tap but he didn't direct it. Right. I don't think it was his original project. Or Rob Reiner. Or Rob Reiner directed it. it. Yeah. I might be wrong, you know, i have to ask Chris if he and if he if they all of them came up with the idea together. it just involved sure Harry and, and McKean yeah. also. Yeah. Yeah. Or if they all just and, and Rob just ended up being the director on it. Right. because um, Chris hadn't directed anything before that. He'd right. done mostly, you know, on camera. Right. And then he started directing, from what I remember.
0: Films what's it like? After what's it that. like to work with with Christopher? Kess? Oh,
1: it's, I love it. It's a pleasure.
0: And he just, you know, so is everything handheld? Um, mostly, yeah. Mostly hand-held. Except
1: for the uh, interviews, we do those on sticks. Right. But everything else is pretty much handheld.
0: And is you are you trying to sort of give it like a underlit? Trying to make it look not lit,
1: but right. still look good, look real. You know, as much of that natural lighting as you can, but.
0: But even, let's be frank, even though the Bond looks natural, and, it, and we were just watching it before yeah. you got here, I think, man, this is kind of like really, really natural, really, but you get great contrast out of it because you put you put heads in clean spaces mm-hmm. and you, you know how to get that effect and shadow becomes part mm-hmm. of the composition and everything. But this, this stuff is, it may very well be in the same school of naturalism, but it looks different. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, part of it is... is- Chris tends to like a brighter image. He likes to see things. You know, he wants to see more. It's comedy. Yeah. To some it's not that flat lit, you know, right big frontal T V comedy, but right. it's still he wants to wants to see the things. So I let's, tend let's to light quickly, it a little bit more sorry usually,
0: yeah. I gotta quickly cover the best in show is about right. basically this dog show where all these quirky characters and their dogs, to all right. sort of model them, are going to go and eventually converge. Yeah. Right. So, I'm uh, sorry, yeah. you were saying so, Chris?
1: No, so, I mean, Chris tends to light things a little bit more up and brighter, and sometimes I'll be lighting things more than I would want to, right. and make it a little bit brighter, a little more flat, a little more even, I should say. And in fact, in, in, the funny thing was, for your consideration, there's the scene where he's the director of the movie within the movie, and Jim Piddick plays the DP, and he's we've lit this room on the set. And I pre-rigged it so that when he goes, okay, like that, we hit the bolt switch and like seventy thousand more watts of light come on and just overexpose the whole thing. And again, the director goes, "That's what I'm talking about." <laughs> and it's kind of ironic because Chris will occasionally, less more less now, but uh, occasionally would have done that. He says, oh, "Come on, just brighten up." Or in in the DI, he goes, "I'll get a really nice look." And he go, "Just brighten,
0: brighten up. up." Yeah, it's funny you wouldn't expect that from him actually. Yeah. Because it's kind of it's kind of like a classic like insecure director thing to try and make things brighter, but he has his reasons for it. I would yeah. guess. I'm not one to question. So we've Sorry. spoken. No, it's okay. We've spoken with um my my only my only hesitation is I want to I want to get right, a right about your movie. Sure, That's sure. True. So we we spoken with Wolfgang Held, who um, is know a his name? New York cinematographer, younger yeah. guy, uh, shot a lot of documentaries, shot a lot of little budget films. Mm-hmm. But he also shot. Does not wear of, an eye patch? Does he? No. No. But, but, but he, he shot on uh, Bruno. Okay. Um, and he said that he had to control it. Like they basically had to make the eyepiece go like this on the camera so that he could try and hide his laughter while he's shooting Sasha Khan. Right. So it, is it ever for you oh, like absolutely. that? Oh, absolutely. So 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 absolutely. what? So how do you deal? I mean, because I have to imagine you'd be shitting your pants half the time with laughter.
1: Yeah, and especially on waiting for Guffman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, and honestly, the, the, you know, the, the, the improv generally tends to fall into place after the first take. The, most of the actors say what they're going to say. They just may be a little different intonation or something here or there. Chris guides them into you know, something slightly different or says, don't follow that point, stay with this point. But when Chris is on camera, he's 180 degrees different every take.
0: So the dialogue is different? Completely
1: Completely different.
0: You don't, the, don't, you the, don't know what. The feeling of the character is different. No, the feeling of the
1: character is the same. Okay, but it's you just—he comes up with these things that you have no idea. It's like, just gets you out of left field, so you're not prepared. You know, you hear a joke the third time, you can laugh, yeah. But I mean, why? You've heard it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Third take, second take—you've you heard it, it's a little funny, but it's the fir- its the first time that it comes out of nowhere that it gets you. Well, Chris came out of nowhere every time, so I was like, you know. I had the camera on my shoulder and I'm just... You can probably see camera movement in a lot of it because it's just me laughing, right. trying, to, trying to control it. My first AC half, half the time, strangely enough, had to turn away from... look away and hold the focus knob without actually looking at Chris or the actors because he was laughing too much. He was <coughs> going like that all right. the time. Right. And you don't want the actors to see you laughing because then...
0: Any particular moment that ended up on screen waiting for Guffman that was not at all... Scripted that you just, you know. Well, none, nothing was scripted. Right.
1: Absolutely. The only thing that was scripted was the, the play that they give with the songs. Nothing okay. was scripted. Right. There's, there's basically, you know, there's story points. Right. This is what happens and you go to here and we're going to, you know, I'm going to go talk to uh, Chris's character. Corky's going to go to Parker. So how did that Parker movie get financed? Uh, you know Castle, Castle Rock. Castle Rock. Castle Rock and Chris's relation with Rob Reiner.
0: Just believed in it and yeah. that was it.
1: He gave him this the idea, he showed it to him, they said, Okay, here's four million dollars. We'll go make it go make your film. That's amazing. Come back with a finished film.
0: And it became it became I think it became one of these movies that has reaped a tidy profit over the course of time. I don't world. know,
1: they claim that it didn't. But, well, you, I,
0: but, but they always claim They always claim it didn't. Yeah. You know, I mean we've seen that Harry Potter six yeah. accounting sheet. Yeah. Nine 900- hundred not thirty-seven dollars. Yeah, grossing. Right. No, we're still we're in right. red. Um, <laughs> so, um, f- so past after Quantum, that's now going back. It's probably Quantum was two thousand seven, two thousand
1: six. No, two thousand seven because it was. They wanted originally they wanted a film to release two thousand seven for the 007. Right. But we Kit shot. it. was after. Ky runner was before. Before. Ky runner okay. was two thousand five. Right. Kai, now Ky runner was
0: twenty million. Also. It's also a beautiful picture. How did you deal with the kites? CGI. So there was no actual kite flying? We had place. some real
1: kites. We shot them as plates for them. Right. There was no way you could control them. Right. Even the best kite fighters there, they could never tell us where, and the lenses would have, had to have been too long, and then we wanted these shots you know, flying with them. The only thing we really did was we did one- Did you flood, go up in a helicopter? We did somewhere? one. We couldn't use a real helicopter in China. They wouldn't let us. We were too close to the border with Pakistan and, Tajik, and Kazakhstan and Tajikistan or something. They, so we weren't allowed to go in helicopters, so we had to use. So one you were of on the
0: Chinese side of the border.
1: We were in China. Yeah, the whole thing we shot in China. I didn't know. In okay. the, the area, um, the because uh, the architecture feels very well. It's 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 the it's the uh, Uyghur people live in that part of China, and it's basically they're they're more Stani than they, they're not they're Han Chinese. Right, got it. They're okay. they're um, ethnically they're Stani Stani. Okay, so they're. They're from Tajikistan or Kazakhstan or whatever. Um, they're Muslim. They right. live in mud houses that look, you know, it, it looks like Afghanistan. It looks like Kabul. So and the, we just had to put the mountains in around it because the mountains there were much farther away. They weren't close like they are in Kabul.
0: You did go to San Francisco to shoot. We shot
1: the end of it in San Francisco. Right. Well, all the San Francisco was shot, was shot in San Francisco except for some of the interiors which we built on stage in Beijing.
0: Was, was it difficult for Mark Forrester dealing with you know, it's—I mean—it's a 450-page, beautifully structured, yeah. beautifully structured yes. story. Yes. And I don't read a lot of novels, which I'll gladly say I'm mm-hmm. horribly underread mm-hmm. as far as novelic literature is concerned.
1: You don't know, have time. You're interviewing people all the
0: time. Pardon me. You're interviewing. People I interview all, the interview all the time, all the time. All the time. Yeah. I wake yeah. up, I roll yeah. out of bed, I am interviewing yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. And if not, I just pretend I am. Yeah. Or you're
1: directing things that people <laughs> that talk, people about talk about badly about. Yeah, yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, <sighs> Anyway, so, so um, uh, you know, it, it's got to be a little bit intimidating to have to take this thing, you know, such a, such a celebrated novel yeah. that kind of comes out as this masterpiece.
1: Well, David David uh, did an incredible job, you know, bringing it down to its essence in yeah. a two-hour movie. But
0: still getting... But still get everything there. 95% important. of the story was, points are in there. That's what I was all amazed at.
1: There. You know. The only thing that wasn't there was really something that they requested... To change was that the kid doesn't kill himself at the end, right. of the movie. They right. wanted to leave a little bit of hope. They thought it'd be too depressing. Right. Uh, even though everybody who read the book knew that the kid kills himself, right. and it was depressing. But no, it was all, you know, pretty much there. It's, it's, you know,
0: it's a story about a kid who grows up in Afghanistan, has a friendship and a relationship both with his father and and the the sort of the servants. Son, right. and eventually goes back to save him right. when he realizes he's got to overcome his, his shortcomings when he was a kid and he didn't. Right. Um, so and all
1: the intricacies of the family relationship because of the, the father really being, which is
0: very bizarre. Because you see that you know it, we, we have a hard time thinking about riches to rags for us. Riches to rags is oh he was a billionaire and now he's yeah. now he's got an apartment. This is right. like you know you go from being a somebody to being a nobody mm-hmm. in a very different way. And you captured it beautifully. Like it was you, you and you and Mark Forster captured it beautifully. Was there anything you did with the lensing to, or was it just scene to scene? It's just scene to scene. You yeah. know, like
1: you, you figure out the, the arc of the story and figure out how you should shoot it and what's the best way to approach. Um, you know, and and the magnificence of the panoramas there, the locations, and really to use the locations and really show them off, so you're not feel like you're shooting like, on stage or green screen.
0: Any particular sequence in there that you really just.
1: Um, I love the very short piece just for a visual thing of where they're driving. They got the kid and they're taking him back across the border into Pakistan and you, the mountains in the background, the, the guard gate goes up and you just have this rising shot with these incredible, the Hindu Kush is just phenomenal there. Um, and that was a constructed shot? That was constructed. Like, like uh, as in
0: you had to plate and you had to map? No, those were real mountains. Oh, you found Yeah, okay. there,
1: there, that was real mountains because that was out, it wasn't in the city itself. Um, no, there's, there's stuff. I mean, I love how the kite flying stuff came out. And we started in the, with the cam around with the kids in the square, going around with them and then coming back. And then we had a miniature helicopter, one of those remote control helicopters, starting on the kids and coming back up with the kite, going back. And then trying one without a kite, just as if they were had kites, and going back up. And then they placed the kite in post. And then all the flying up with the kites, doing all that stuff in the sky was all CGI. And they did an incredible Incredible CG.
0: It looked amazing. Yeah,
1: I got embarrassed a few times because I'd see like um, somebody would put like a, a assembly of some of my films or stuff. And the one shot they take from the Kite Runner is the kites and the CGI, which I didn't do. Right. Which and I don't want to take credit for it. You you know, it's, no, no, you should. It's, it's, yeah. it's Hollywood. Yeah, it's all you. Uh, last movie you shot. Uh, the last movie I shot, The Host. The Host.
0: Okay, and it's. It's
1: about about uh, Well it's a It's about uh, It's a science fiction About aliens Taking over the earth Mm -hmm. And they inhabit The bodies of people This is
0: out of the box for you Because you I mean even Drama, drama, drama A lot of dramas Yeah And even James Bond You know it's an action movie But with a lot of drama Built into it Yeah Um, This is now Going into a different territory
1: Yeah but it's a lot of drama Okay. It's it's a lot of drama. There's some action. You know, there's action. There's chase sequences. There's helicopters crashing and people you know firing machine guns and um, crashing trucks and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's basically a human, human alien human drama about yeah. conflict of the uh, woman, the body. All the bodies are taken over. There's there's uh, rebels who have escaped who didn't get their bodies taken over. And they're hiding out underground and they're trying to you know get together and, and uh, get their life back.
0: Did you, I mean, did you go for a different look for this one or no?
1: Um, well, I worked with Andrew Nichol, who's an extremely talented and wonderful visualist. Brilliant man, too. A brilliant guy, brilliant one, guy, one of the wonderful, few,
0: amazing writer. One of the few writers out there that actually tries to yeah. go back to a three-year-old, imagine what if, yeah. and actually do it. Yep. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, no, he's, he's an incredible writer and an incredible person, a uh, lovely guy, and he has an extremely strong visual sense. Again, I'd say with him very close to my visual, I mean, Gattaca for me. Well, most. Gattaca, yeah, I mean, that's like... Yeah, yeah. All, all the touchstones there, the, the architecture, yeah. the clothing, the cars. Everything. I mean, I'm a, I'm a 60s car person. Or I love... Probably you know, a Jag. The, no, Citroën, the Citroën DS convertible. Oh, okay. The Citroëns, the, the Avanti... Uh, oh, yeah.
0: All of those. What about there's a certain Volvo from like the 60s that has a kind of like a. Oh, the the Saint Volvo? The, yeah. The P1800. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of. You yeah, you can see that.
1: Yeah. Uh, the Jaguar XKE. Right. You know, the E type Jag. E type, yeah. yeah. Which he used in the last one that he did before this, In Time. In Time, yeah. He had that yeah. chrome, the silvered one. And we had yeah. chrome plated lotuses in this. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing stuff. And it's, it's we spoke, you know, on the same, same wavelength, and his production designer who had worked. Uh, with our, Alex McDowell for many years, yeah. is a really great production designer. We had really incredible sets to work with, in the same kind of the look and the architecture, together with the naturalistic part of where these underground caves. It's a, apart from spending forty percent of our screen time in a cave. Wow, um, which was tough for me. That was I was going to
0: say because you're a natural guy. Now you got to try and I say, how find do we naturally light this cave?
1: Yeah. And supposedly there were holes above where light comes in because they grow wheat
0: inside. So we had to, a
1: lot of suspension of disbelief in this,
0: for me. Does it get to a point, though, where you, instead of saying, where would the light come from, you say, how would it look if I was down there, with what little light there is, and you start to try and emulate what the eye would see? Yeah,
1: you try that, and then you go, you know, this is never going to work. How, how, do I want, how do I want it to look? How do, how do we want it to look? How do we want it to Let's look? Let's go for something that looks good. Right. That looks cool, that looks believable, but, you know, not 100% believable. But that's still, you know, you can buy into it. Tell us about the series you just
0: shot with HBO with Christopher Guest.
1: Uh, Family Tree, it's called. Yeah, And it's about a a guy who inherits a box full of supposed junk or whatever it is from a relative that he barely knew or didn't even know he knew. Um, And then he's lost his job and he's lost his girlfriend and uh, he's looking for reasons and he's got a best friend who's a kook and uh, he gets this box and he starts to look through it and find all these things to try to find to decide to, to seek out who he really is and what he comes from by f- these clues that he finds in these boxes in this box like photographs and all sorts of items eight part series uh, eight part series no. four, four parts in England he's, it's an English family English actor uh, Chris O'Dowd uh, is the lead and he finds and discovers what he's you know that he finds that he actually has American relatives that his family actually moved from America to England back in the uh, 1800s and so he goes over to America and discovers his family over here. And,
0: and they're in the Ozarks. No,
1: they're in California, Glendale, okay. Glendale, Glendale. Yeah. And so he goes around, uh, and it's 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 all improv. Hysterically funny. Hysterically funny, all improv, with a lot of kind of sad drama, funny in it too.
0: Is it planning on continuing for another season? It or? might. It depends
1: may. on, I guess, how it does for the first season. The eight It opens May twelfth on HBO. Or premieres May twelfth. And uh, if it does well, which I think it will um, and the the nice thing is that you know we shot the first season half here, half in England um, the director and writer chris Christopher Guest wrote it with Jim pittick mm-hmm. They've decided that the next episodes, if it continues, will only take place in places where the food is good so 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 it could be Italy pl- England and france. is out England is out, it could be Ingl- Italy could be france. france could be Thailand, it sure. could be Japan, could be wherever. He can find reasons to go for his family. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, that's great. Yeah. Roberto Schaefer, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. pleasure. We look forward to seeing you. You're a man at the height of his game, and we look forward to seeing great pictures from you for years to come.